0: And then let's do this thing. Hi, and welcome to Filmmaker's Compass Podcast, a show where we talk about movies and, well, more movies. I'm D-Man, joined by CP. CP, how are you doing today?
1: I am fantastic, dude. How are you?
0: Well, you know what? I'm excited for our discussion today. And one of the things that uh, is, is really cool is this year, you and I are actually going to try and see as many of... The uh, best picture nominees for the Oscars as we can and we're going to talk a little bit about that as we get into the show, but hopefully you and I are able to see a majority of them and then we can actually make solid predictions on who honestly we think will win for best picture.
1: I mean, that sounds like a lot of work.
0: I mean, watching movies is always fun. So I don't know if I would consider that work compared to uh, a lot of other things that I've done for work. That sounds like the best. (laughs) So anyway, uh, on this episode, I'll go ahead and do our uh, I have a couple shout outs and then I'll throw it over to you if you have any shout outs. So first up, I wanted to say a big congratulations to Leah and Miguel who announced uh, that they are having a baby. So congratulations, guys. So happy for you. I know that's not necessarily uh, movie feedback, but uh, love you guys and just happy for you. So uh, next up, I got to give a shout out to our moms. Uh, Always appreciate you guys tuning in. I know my mom had mentioned that she loves to watch the show on YouTube. And something I wanted to clarify while we're doing the shout outs here, CP, is we are still releasing the podcast in whole as an audio podcast, and that will be available on YouTube as well. But we're also releasing the episodes uh, segmented based on what we're actually talking about on the different platforms, which will bring the runtime down and there might be more individual clips. So keep an eye out for that listeners, but uh, all this stuff will be there. We're just kind of switching it up a little bit in how we're actually releasing the content. So you know, expectation wise, we won't necessarily have the full, uh, you know, 45 to an hour plus episode as a video every week on the YouTube channel. So just a heads up. Just a heads up. And <laughs> then lastly, shout out to David. Uh, I wish I had a chance to hang out with you a little bit longer this weekend, but unfortunately, uh, I was unable to do so. So even though uh, we weren't able to talk movies as I was hoping we would and potentially having you on as a guest, uh, hopefully we'll be able to meet up again soon and then lock that up. So CP, I'm going to throw it over to you. Do you have any shout outs on this episode?
1: I want to give a shout out to good friend of the show, Brian Tenbosch. Congratulations on your engagement, man.
0: Hey, congratulations, Brian.
1: Yay. That's awesome. All right. So I'm going to take this second to say... Let's jump into one of the new segments of the show, our box office breakdown. Yes. So, last weekend in the box office, things were really surprisingly similar to the week before. The number one movie in America was Mean Girls. And the number two movie in America was The Beekeeper. Okay. And the number three was Wonka. Now. No no major new releases, I'm taking it. No major new releases, no major changes. When we look at the international box office, those are swapped around a little bit. Again, if you recall, in the international box office, The Beekeeper was the number one movie. And it, in fact, continued that way through the weekend. With Mean Girls in the number two spot. Yet surprisingly, internationally, the number three movie is Blumhouse's Night Swim. Okay. So just a little update. Obviously, the film Argyle is coming out this weekend. So, you know, maybe Henry Cavill and Dua Lipa will, you know, take over the box office from here on out.
0: They probably will. I saw a trailer for Night Swim. Didn't seem like my cup of tea. I don't think I'll be seeing that one.
1: Yeah. No, I, I mean, I didn't, it, it seemed, well, obviously if it seemed great. I think we both would have gone to see it. Probably. <laughs> so that's it for the box office breakdown. Now I also wanted to take a second to bring you a pop culture minute. Now. All right. Okay. As I'm sure all of you are aware, the, Academy award nominations are out. When we look at that field of movies nominated for 2024, Oppenheimer leads with 13 nominations. Wow. Poor Things has 11 nominations. Wow, that's Killers, better
0: than I thought too. That's really good.
1: Yeah, I didn't expect Poor Things to be uh that well received. It looked wacky, it looked zany. I mean, it always looked a little
0: off-kilter, but I mean, sometimes that's, you know, that works for the Academy.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then Killers of the Flower Moon has 10 nominations and Barbie rounds that out with eight.
0: You know what's wild is Barbie got nominated for Best Picture. You actually commented on this in a in a social media post that you put out. And it is interesting because I love a lot about what Barbie was doing. I think on our episode last week, I even put it as one of my pleasant surprises of 2023. I really enjoyed the movie Barbie, but it does blow my mind that you're like that could be like the best picture of the year.
1: Well, in all the conversations I had with the people through social media, everyone seemed to drive home the fact that they thought Barbie deserved to be best picture because of the messaging behind the film, which is noble, but no one actually said to me, this deserves to be best picture because I actually think that this was the best made film. It was either I liked the message or it was my favorite film, but I didn't have anyone actually tell me on the technical merits or the cinematic merits or what it did for the advance of cinema, that that is what warranted it to, to earn that nomination. So I did find that a little surprising.
0: Yeah. I mean, and let's face it, there's a lot of movies out there that have good messaging or good themes. Uh, that doesn't always mean they're nominated for best picture though.
1: And yeah. So I just, I thought that was interesting. So audience, What's your thoughts on it? Let's start there. I would really be curious. On
0: that note, CP, I I did want to bring up a little bit of controversy and it was interesting because I guess Ryan Gosling got nominated for best supporting actor for Ken, but there were no best, uh, I guess, female actor for Margot Robbie and then no best director nomination for Greta Gerwig. And Everybody was like, wow, like that sort of plays right into the theme of the film that a man would get nominated. But the two females basically behind the success of Barbie did not get individual nominations, despite there is a nomination for the screenplay and uh, Best Picture, you know, people... Definitely took to controversy because I think it sort of, you know, just having the man get the nomination for for the individual sort of uh, <laughs> highlighted the themes of the film. But you have to say, I mean, at the end of the day, Ryan Gosling's performance as Ken was probably the most standout of all the performances in the movie. You know, second only to probably America Ferreras, who also, I believe, got nominated.
1: Yeah, she got nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Um, I do think it is interesting because when I think about Barbie, when we think that they have now expanded the field of best pictures to 10 films, do you think it would have made that initial cut of best five? I don't think so either. No, but
0: the problem is, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I have not seen all of the 10 nominees. So I'm actually probably not the person you want to trust outright at this point on whether Bar- barbie would actually be in there that's just my gut feeling based on having seen the film and what sort of you know qualifies for a best picture you know because i think when we look at those top five mm-hmm. you do think any of them could win with mm-hmm. top 10 i mean there are movies that i'm like "Hey, top gun was the best that was my favorite but i'm like it's not gonna win like yeah. it's just not and that so happens.
1: Just now. to round out the discussion on best pictures, the other six nominated films are American Fiction, Anatomy of a Fall, The Holdovers, Maestro, Past Lives, and The Zone of Interest.
0: Okay. So yeah, see, I got to see a couple of those. There so.
1: you have it, folks. Those are the movies. One of well, one of those movies is going to be the best film from all of last year.
0: Yeah, and uh it is exciting because Uh, We got Christopher Nolan. We got Scorsese back in the top. No Spielberg this year. Nope. You know what actually blew my mind as far as the nominations go? And this was kind of wild. Did you know Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny was nominated for best original score? Really? Yeah, John Williams got another nomination. But if I had to, I mean, I love John Williams. And I love the Indiana Jones score. But if I had to guess, I don't know how that's an original score. Meaning you know, there are elements that are new for that movie, but I mean, it's still riffing on like one of the most iconic scores Hmm. of all
1: time. That's kind of actually interesting when you think about that. Yeah.
0: I was like, that's crazy. And then I think the big, you know, the sort of drama around it was that uh, across the spider verse, that score did not get nominated, which is pretty wild when you think about it because that showed up in social media everywhere. And, you know, I mean, almost all the aspects of that film were incredible so
1: just i mean and i guess my last question is any other big surprises that you saw in the nominees
0: uh going back through everything not major major surprises now it's up to the upsets because i
1: i did see one okay why was super mario brothers not nominated for best animated feature I know it's like the highest grossing animated film of all time now I think.
0: Did it did yeah. overtake Frozen 2. I think it
1: did. And it was incredibly well received by fans and critics. I would have thought that at least would have, that would have been enough to garner a nomination.
0: I will say this, it is based on whatever the competition is and if I had to go with my gut on that one, I actually think that's totally fine. I mean, it was colorful animation. It played well for kids and, and nostalgia factor for adults. But I mean, honestly, like, you know, when you're giving out awards, I my guess is I, I didn't really think it was awards worthy. <laughs> OK, all right. So, I mean, but again, it's like, you know, you're up against the Frozens of the world, the Pixar's and the Disney films and all that. And I don't know. I, I thought it was all right. <laughs> okay. Like I like I, I'm not even lying. Like I I
1: enjoyed the movie. I actually thought the supermar. Yeah, it actually doesn't right. sound like you enjoyed the movie. It sounds like you're like eh, I know that that's right? what I'm
0: saying. It's like coming off like I hated it. I didn't hate it. I really enjoyed it. But I mean like is it honestly like the award winner or even a top 5 nominee? I don't know.
1: All right. Well, I mean it's clearly clearly you weren't a big fan. <laughs> yeah, I but I love Chris Pratt. I mean, that's
0: <laughs> big Pratt. Pratt guy. So anyway, CP, I'm going to throw it over to you. Let's go ahead and introduce our major topic because it kind of segues right out of what we were talking about with the Best Picture nominees into a much lengthier discussion about a movie that we both saw during our hiatus but haven't had a chance to discuss on the podcast. So we wanted to do that a little
1: bit today. Well, since we were talking about nominees, we thought it appropriate to talk about a little bit about the film Scorsese's The Killers of the Flower Moon. Now, both of us saw it, you know, anytime Martin Scorsese makes a movie, I do feel inclined to see it and see it in the theater because the guy knows his craft. I'll be there. But there was a lot that we wanted to discuss with this movie and now seemed like the perfect time since it's award season. We're going to be talking about these films. And if you haven't seen it, you probably should because, well, it was nominated 10 times.
0: (laughs) So, okay. Obviously, we're talking about Killers of the Flower Moon. By this point, you know that we're actually going to spoil some of the movies. So if you haven't seen it, be sure to uh, pause the podcast now, go watch it, and then come back after you've seen it. But spoilers. If we're going to start off with a discussion on Killers of the Flower Moon, I mean, one of the first things I want to discuss is actually the characters. One of the things that just stood out to me when seeing this movie, and it is a bit, a little bit of a, a criticism here, and you know, it hate, I hate to start a Scorsese discussion with a little bit of criticism, but I found the leads, both uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's Ernest and then Robert De Niro's. What was the character's name? What was his name?
1: Oh, uh, William Hale.
0: Hale. Yeah, uh... I found them to be entirely unlikable. So I think when compared to other Scorsese films, you know, I'll just pick two, but I'll go with Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street. I feel like the leads, you know, Henry Hill and Jordan Belfort in those movies, again, a Leo main character, like Leo's clearly pulled this off before, they have a charisma and an agency to them that sort of uh, gets us on their side, even though they're bad guys, right? They're gangsters and, and Wall Street barons. You know, they're not good people, but for whatever reason, they're able to sort of charm us in the audience into wanting to go on this journey with them. So we enjoy watching them and enjoy watching their exploits, where here in Killers of the Flower Moon, I really didn't like either of them, like on a a, a viewer movie level. I never really got on their side. I never really sort of enjoyed what they were trying to do their exploits, anything. They were just scumbags that like stole from innocent people. And I don't know. So in that way, I felt the movie didn't have sort of like a traditional sort of main character or almost like hero role and to its detriment because yeah, I just couldn't wait for them to, uh, you know, hopefully get caught and maybe get hanged or something.
1: Well, I think it's really interesting because obviously De Niro made a career by playing these multifaceted, very interesting villains, right? Yeah. I mean, even if we go all the way back to the Godfather 2, this is who Robert De Niro is on the screen. And I think, you know, another great example is when we think back to Scorsese's taxi driver, Travis Bickle is not sympathetic. He's not likable, but the way that De Niro brings him to life. He's very much fascinating. And we're interested to see where this crazy person goes as he spirals down. And I think to the detriment of the character of Hale, he isn't particularly charismatic, but he isn't interesting enough that we really are interested in watching his descent into madness.
0: Yeah. Like again, he's kind of just like a snake the whole time. Right. He Mm -hmm. he just sort of stands out like we're all like, okay, like he wants to, you know, steal the rights from the Osage people to their uh, their drilling rights to oil. And it's sort of main made clear early on that this is what they're they're doing. You know, it's it's not like a mystery to us, the viewer, even though it is a mystery to the characters within the story. And it, it just you don't get any more sort of depth. To that character, like, what does he actually care about, or why does he want all this money, or is he just greedy? I guess so. I don't have know. have a
1: couple throwaway lines where he talks about, you know, how it's important for for the family, but it's 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 superficial motivation, and I think that's the problem. You know, the the other yeah. issue is I think when we look at DiCaprio, you know, this is a character who at the start of the movie he's coming back from World War One. Right. Yeah. Um, He's getting back home. He talks about, you know, kind of having been through the horrors of the war. Yet the rest of the movie, he's just kind of a passenger. You know, this isn't a character like Jordan Balfour, who we, you know, who who goes into Wall Street with the highest um, ideals and kind of really falls. You know, right? He's corrupt. His wife. We see him be corrupt by everything. Or Henry Hill, this guy who always wanted to be a gangster and he gets higher and higher up in, in pursuit of that goal. And the but more and more it. And it, until it reaches the point where he's like, wow, you know, I'm looking at either going to prison for the rest of my life or getting killed by my friends or having to give up everything I believed on. And each of those choices are really bad and really hard. And now I have to decide what I'm going to do. Right. It is spiraled out of control to this point. Like, for Ernest in the film, he doesn't truly seem to be presented with with these choices that he has to wrangle with. And I thought that that was weird. So
0: obviously with Ernest, right, it all comes down to eventually he's literally like poisoning his own wife. And he doesn't seem to enjoy it. He's he's not doing it without any sort of remorse, but he just sort of goes along with it instead of like standing up to this guy and being like, hey, you know, uh, that's a step too far, or, you know, like really challenging his uncle with some sort of agency and saying like, hey, you know, I can do this to people that I don't know, but like, I'm not going to kill my own wife. He's like, yeah, all right. Yeah. I guess yeah, right. we got to yeah. do it. If we got to do it, then sure. And it it does play off that way. And again, I think that's another reason why we don't really get on their side. We don't really get behind them in what they're trying to do, right? Like you mentioned Wolf of Wall Street. I think there's a scene where he's talking to his first wife and she's like, well, like, wouldn't you feel better if like the people also made money? And he's like, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, you know? But then Mm -hmm. the, the VO comes on and he's like, their money's better off in my pocket anyway. I know how to spend it. And then he does spend it lavishly, but he like takes us on this journey of like, you know, hey, if you had all this money, this is what I would do with it. And I mean, that's a little bit of wish fulfillment. We all do that, you know, when you see like MTV Cribs or, you know, you're just wondering what a millionaire or billionaire does with their money. And they charm us and they take this on take us on this journey. And in this movie, it's just like people just keep dying. Ernest doesn't seem that's Leo's character doesn't really seem to care and he just sort of just goes along with it. He's like, oh, you know, I guess we got to kill someone else now. And you're and like, they never question, like, when is enough enough? Like, how many do you need all the rights? You got to take them all
1: Well, like. And the, and the other thing that's weird, too, is and this is set up where his when he returns to town, his uncle tells him about Lily Gladstone's character and how she's a widow and she's attractive. And he's like, oh, you know. He his uncle very much sets him up to to be in a position to take advantage of her. Yet we don't also ever see Ernest truly be like, yeah, let's do it. Like, this is a great way to make this cash grab. He just is kind of like, okay, sure, I'll just go along. Like, he seems so unmotivated in every decision that he, he could make as a character.
0: Yeah, right? Like, even his wife, like, just meeting her, marrying her, it seems like he actually loves her. And Mm -hmm. yet he's willing to kill her. And they never sort of explore like that duality
1: in any way. Like
0: He's just kind of like, all right, I guess I got to kill my wife. And you're like, really? Yeah. Like, that's wild. It just I don't know. It just seems like a character that's willing to do a lot of those terrible things would just have some more agency when it came to the decisions they're making. But he just seems so passive, not really villainous, but also clearly no hero. You know, he's a bad guy. And so, I don't know, it's just, it's a kind of a strange dynamic, I think. But in addition to those two characters and their sort of a- agency, I, I'm also curious how the Osage, I mean, there is a few scenes where they sort of suspect that there's some real foul play going on. But within the actual community, they sort of mourn each of the deaths and kind of dismiss them. They they don't really challenge whether all of these are coincidental or whether there's something else going on, like nobody seems to know who actually has the rights to all these these drilling rights, or who has the papers to these drilling rights. Because, I mean, it, it wouldn't take much investigation to find that Hale's ending up with all the drilling yeah, rights. Yeah, yeah. You're like, well, I mean, put those two together. You're like, I, I I don't know. If we could prove it, this guy might be, uh, you know, exploiting and killing innocent people. I don't know. They just sort of never really question it. It sort of takes an outside investigation. The FBI stepping in because one of them was brave enough to go to the White House or I guess Washington, D.C. I don't remember if it was the White House Mm -hmm. or or the Congress building. But they they go to Washington, D.C. and sort of finally get some attention on it because Mm -hmm. they're like, this is crazy. But that's what it took was like outside investigation. It didn't seem like if you if it it seems like if that hadn't happened, this just would have kept going on
1: yeah well, and I think that that's <laughs> that's the point of it, right that no one in Oklahoma at the time cared enough to do anything and all the people in power were the ones who were taking advantage of the Osai people yeah right and, and they I mean, were let's, the ones getting screwed despite the amount of wealth that they had, they didn't have any means of actual power
0: yeah and I don't I don't know what the like prevailing common sense was at this time, but like on the reservation, seems rather obvious to just suspect the white guy
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you wouldn't have been wrong but <laughs> yeah. this is why all of that persists today right because you're like yeah this is what shitty people did back in the day it's like nobody suspects him and i think you had mentioned when we were talking pre-production though that they do a fairly good job with hale's character of at least making him seem like he's built up a level of trust within the community. And they sort of play this over and over again, where whether it's important family events or funerals or local Osage traditions, he always seems to be around or be invited, which the movie does do a good job of at least making it seem that would not make people think he might be guilty.
1: Well, I think the problem is that from an audience we see his intentions laid out very early in the film and we know that he can't be trusted. I think for Scorsese really to mask from us the fact that it is in fact De Niro, the person who is orchestrating all the murders, or all the murders, we should have seen him only from the perspective that the Osai saw him, which is someone who has been accepted into the community. He's a huge ally. He pretends to be their biggest advocate to the the world outside of of their community and i think as an audience if we had seen this guy and we're like well you know at least they have some guy in their corner that's trying to get the attention of the governor and the sheriff and washington and then we find out once everything's pulled back that he's really the one at the heart of orchestrating everything maybe we would have felt that betrayal to a greater extent But because we know early on he doesn't believe it's fair that they have the rights to the oil, he pretty much lays out the fact that he's willing to do anything to get them. It just, it doesn't really have an emotional impact with us as the audience.
0: Yeah, it just seems like, you know, whether it's his drunk friend or whoever, like he's just always covering up and we're just sort of like watching him, you know, uh, cover his tracks. Mm -hmm. There's no sort of like, again like surprise or, or any sort of uh, exploration of motive. He's just sort of a greedy guy, I guess. I don't know. Did, did I, did I miss something? Like, is there, I I mean, I'm sure there has to be more nuance if you go back through the actual history No, of it.
1: I mean. The I... movie
0: itself just doesn't present him I... as anybody more than just like a greedy white man who wants to take advantage of native Americans and steal their,
1: their drilling rights. No. And my understanding, when I did some research after the film, apparently the real character of Hale always maintained his innocence, despite being convicted of it. But from everything I read historically and everything I saw in the movie, he appears like he's just a greedy racist. Yeah. He, kind of. There's no greater motivation. Like we have seen with other characters where for whatever reason, You know, he's just like, well, they have these rights and that's pretty messed up. I want them because then I would get the money. And it's it's that black and white. There's nothing more to it. Not even to the sense that, like, it's not even a character who, as I said, like when we when we compare it to other Scorsese films where we see through the character's descent, how they start justifying a little bit more every time. Right. Like, well, that's fine. You know? Yeah. You know, a good example is Goodfellas, how. It, when it gets to the point when Jimmy is, starts killing off all of their friends, Henry Hill's almost complicit. And he's like, well, that's just Jimmy. He'd gotten paranoid. He knew it was his money. Like, and he almost dismisses it as, Hey, that's just gangster life. Right. Yeah. And we don't get anything like that from Hale. He just starts out like, Hey, I want the money. So I'll do what I gotta do to get the money.
0: Yeah. And I just, I don't know, I think maybe a little bit more explanation into why, if you're going, because here's the thing. When we look at the the story perspective, the the, the way the movie's constructed centers uh, Ernest and Hale as the main characters of the story. They're the ones that were sort of following through these schemes. And they, they just, because they're the centered characters of the narrative, they don't ever sort of explore these like deeper motives for why they're committing such atrocities. And, you know, on that note, it's interesting because I know hearing some interviews or reading some interviews uh, with Scorsese about how he really wanted to tell this story because it's like a forgotten story about the Osage Native Americans and, uh, you know, a terrible thing that happened. He doesn't want it to be forgotten to history, he wants people to know about it. It was a little odd to me that, right, that, that they're the main characters, that they're the center, because I got the impression from his interviews that Scorsese sort of wanted to center the Osage, right? He didn't want to make this a movie about just white men, and yet mm-hmm. somehow it sort of still ended up that way. Like, the Osage are always a little bit outside the main narrative. Molly, uh, Lily Gladstone's character, who she great, she gave a great performance, uh, you know, she's Constantly in mourning, she's losing so many people within her family. But the the story never really shifts to her perspective, except maybe a little bit at the very end when she finally confronts Ernest. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. other than that, it's never from her perspective. You know, she argues with him, but he's still the one that has to like decide whether or not to poison his wife. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't know. I was a little surprised that the movie continues to center sort of these unlikable villains, despite Scorsese saying like, you know, I I really wanted to highlight the Osage. And he does a lot of things within the context of the movie, whether it's specific ceremonies, exploring uh, certain aspects of their culture. He brings all that to the table. It's just that the characters never get centered.
1: Well, and I think that what this really gets to is... The way Scorsese framed the story, I think, is the failure. And I think it's really hard to ever actually say anything Martin Scorsese does cinematically is a failure. But in my mind, it just doesn't work. And so... Can you explain a little bit what you mean? (laughs) Well, so the film is based on a nonfiction book, The Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI. So I believe, and this is what I suspect, That the initial script brought to Scorsese was likely focusing on the birth of the FBI. And the problem with that is when he shifted the focus, I don't think he went far enough to move away from the original, original screenplay. I think if he wanted to tell a story like he intended to, and like you're saying, where you tell this from the Osai's perspective, I think it should have been centered around the character of Molly. It should have been framed like a thriller where all of a sudden, all the people around her are essentially being picked off, you know, like any other good serial killer type movie. And she is left to wonder who is doing it and why, and what can be done. But we never truly get in, in that perspective of her as the victim Powerless as people around her are dropping inexplicably. And if we had taken less of a focus on Ernest and Hale, I think that really could have been achieved. And it would have been a very suspenseful drama as we try to figure out what's going on. Yeah.
0: Or like you said, there is the potential of shifting it the other way, which is sort of framing the story through the investigation, which. I feel like you probably could have gone either way, and yet somehow they ended up in the middle there where it doesn't quite work.
1: Well, in the way the story is framed now, the FBI, the quote-unquote creation of the FBI is because no one in Oklahoma was willing to investigate the murders, the federal government sent in investigators from around the country through the newly created FBI to get to the bottom of what was going on. And some of that is really interesting because they even bring in a uh, – one of the most interesting characters I thought was actually the F- – uh, one of the investigators who was from another Native American tribe. And he shows up for the O signs like, oh, my mother was. And he really embeds himself within right, the tribe Right, yeah, he's like himself. undercover. Yeah, he's like the undercover officer to figure out what's going on. And we see some scenes where all, all of these FBI agents are getting together to work the crime scene. But the problem is that really happens in the third act of the movie. That's where we start, you know, figuring out what's going on with the murders themselves. And a lot of those plot elements are kind of decided away from the audience. Yeah, I have to agree. I think, yeah, I
0: I think the opportunity maybe to either take either side. It's one of those interesting scenarios where I would kind of like to see a movie about this from the investigation side. And I would kind of like to see a movie from the Osage side as well. Like that, those different perspectives on the same sort of event or same, you know, tragic events uh, might actually be pretty enlightening and pretty cool. And it feels like, you know, by picking that middle ground, they were trying to cover all of it. All the
1: bases. Yeah.
0: Without being able to truly dive deep enough into any of them to explore it with the nuance that I think, you know, it, it, probably warranted, or you might even get through the actual book, you know, another example of that from a a movie that came out this year and also nominated for best picture is Oppenheimer. So we have talked before about how like in Oppenheimer, right? He focuses on the character and the building of the bomb, but Nolan doesn't really go explore uh, the droppings of the bombs, anything in Japan or any sort of aftermath for the Japanese. As a result of Oppenheimer's work and the United States dropping two atomic bombs on Japan. But Nolan has defended that perspective because he felt that the film was from Oppenheimer's perspective and he didn't actually get to go see any of that. He didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, the character himself didn't get to explore it beyond, you know, his own sort of guilt and grief around his contributions to the bomb, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. how that sort of translated into later his arms talks and, you know, not wanting an H-bomb program because he just figures we'll just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Like where does it end?
1: Yeah, exactly. And
0: so they sort of explore that nuance in Oppenheimer with his character through his actions. In this case, again, it seems like instead of centering the story over here and focusing on the Osage or maybe the investigation, it was like they tried to cover all the perspectives maybe a little bit to the detriment of the you know nuance you could explore in these different areas because seriously like the investigative side this isn't just an investigation like this helped form the FBI that's kind of a, mm-hmm. a big deal that's mm-hmm. like a real thing and then the osage side like you said if it was, if you're in the mind of the people who this is happening to this is like terrible and what's going on and it's a thriller and is it my husband and is it what is happening different perspective mm-hmm. so that might have been uh, that might have been fun to
1: maybe see those different different perspectives Explore deeper than they were. The other thing I wanted to talk about was I thought it was really interesting. Obviously, the cast brought in for this film was really quite impressive. Yet there were also decisions by Scorsese, like for example, the actor who just won the the Academy Award for Best Actor last year, Brendan Fraser, was brought in, and his role is almost insignificant. Yeah, he's the uh, he's a lawyer, correct? He's At, The attorney he, for for Hale and Ernest.
0: Right. He shows up in the third act and his character is not really explored beyond uh, just sort of some basic, dramatic the most basic
1: like courtroom etiquette, yeah. you know,
0: he's and he's extravagant and having fun in the role. And I, I do think, you know, Brendan Fraser brings something to what is otherwise maybe, uh, you know, totally forgettable spot. So I think he elevated it in that way, even though he did face some criticism online for maybe being a little too over the top. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it felt memorable, at least, as far as a performance goes. But his character, again, just didn't, you know, uh, really get explored all that much other than, you know, sort of coming up with the motives for why any of this stuff would, might happen sans his clients.
1: <laughs> well, so what I, the reason why I bring that up is, Do you think that there's kind of a fourth version of this film, which would have been the trial, the trial and the courtroom drama, where as an audience, we're seeing people brought up on charges, and then we're seeing this greater story unfold through the perspective of the FBI agents testifying and the individuals themselves on the stand? Uh, another
0: great element of story structure you could totally introduce. I mean, we're seeing elements of that play out in in things like Oppenheimer, and then obviously if you go back a few years, uh, The Social Network, where you sort of have these people being questioned, and then you're going back to the events. And but again, what's what makes those so compelling is that when you're going through this testimony and sort of showing the past, it's through the perspective that the person testifying is giving their perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that could be a lot of fun. I mean, if you were able to sort of weave that together where it's like you have the FBI perspective, but then you have Ernest tell his side. And when you're going back, it's different than what the FBI experienced, or maybe from the perspective of the Osage or whoever Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. you know, up on the stand, that could be really cool. Yeah. Different movie though. Totally different. Very different movie. Yeah. So I don't know. I think I, I do like how the structure itself, there's, Definitely, I, I know Scorsese is on the right track here. There's definitely something here that is absolutely worth exploring. Uh, I just think by trying to essentially cover all the bases in one narrative structure, you lose some of that nuance. And then also, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he just ended up picking the most unlikable people.
1: <laughs> well, to... I think that that's the real problem, right? Normally the characters that we follow in a Scorsese movie are interesting. And these were just so blah. Yeah. And I mean, here's the
0: other thing too, is when you have characters like that, I mean, one of the issues I think with the film itself is that it does feel long. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's length also sort of drags out some of those same qualities. If if you're not the most interesting characters to follow, if you follow them for longer, as an audience member, you get a little bit more bored. You know, if you speed it up at least, or you're you know you're able to really introduce an editing style and pacing to it, right? Because I like to think of a, uh, you know, you have something like Goodfellas, which is sort of Scorsese's signature style that we see translated to Wolf of Wall Street, right? Mm-hmm. But then you go to uh, what was the one that Robert De Niro was in the the Man Who Paints Houses, The Irishman,
1: mm, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah.
0: Another gangster movie. You're following gangsters, but the pace is just slowed down considerably compared to something like Goodfellas or Wolf of Wall Street. A lot of people complained that The Irishman was slow, right? And I feel like this sort of follows in that vein where like it's slowed down a lot. And to that end, if you're going to slow it down, the character's got to be really interesting. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, you want to sit in a room with them because they're just so fun to be around, or at least entertaining in terms of right maybe they're terrible people but like uh what's the guy's name from django calvin candy Mm -hmm. i mean they stay on that scene when they're at his dinner table for a long time but i mean he's an atrocious person terrible guy but entertaining as a film character Mm -hmm. right and there's a lot of tension in that room and you kind of want to sit there because it's like it's wild and so yeah. I don't know you, you got to bring that if you're going to slow it down. I don't, what'd you think?
1: What do you think do you feel it was too long? Yeah, it bordered on it. And I think it's weird because Scorsese makes long movies. Yeah. <laughs> That's Casino. what the guy does. But again, when I compare yeah. it to something like Casino, Goodfellas, Departed, um Wolf of Wall Street, it it doesn't feel like those movies don't feel like there's unnecessary moments. Everything about them feels essential. Whereas this one, I'm like, yeah, there's there's definitely things you could cut here. Yeah. And I do want to
0: note that I, I if I'm not mistaken, and we might have to look this up and clarify for next week, but I want to say Scorsese was working with somebody who passed away. It might have been his editor or and I think they passed away like before this movie was completed. But it's like his longtime collaborator. Mm. And it may be that, you know, I think that same something similar happened with Tarantino
1: a few years back
0: and where maybe, you know, uh, ordinarily you might have somebody that's not a yes man that like you collaborate. And, you know, if your editor is like, nah this has got to go. It's just too slow. You defer to them. But when someone new comes in, you know, they might be like, oh, my gosh. And again, we might have to clarify this. I don't remember if it was if it was the editor or whoever it was, but sometimes that can also affect. Those little, those little things. So that could be, but overall, I mean, it's so weird because CP I feel like our conversation here has been one of (laughs) critical, critical (laughs) criticism. You know, we we haven't had a lot of great things to say about the movie, despite both of us also saying that we really enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, I think there is some beautiful cinematography Within here, I think there are scenes of tension. There's scenes of humor. I remember one of them where uh, Ernest is going to get paddled,
1: you know, amazing. Yeah. 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 But
0: there are some scenes of tension. Uh, Like I said, I I actually enjoyed Brendan Fraser's character. And I thought that they did uh, some things really well, but you know, I've always, you know, if you go back through our total rewinds or some of our older segments, you know, something I always like to harp on is, you know, even the score. I thought the score works really well for the movie here, although it didn't end up creating any
1: sort of like iconic themes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I thought it did work really well. Well, and Uh, I think the other thing is this. Uh, Scorsese made a point that he wanted to bring these murders to light and tell the stories of the victims. And he did that. This is a film that is now being considered for best picture. And a lot of people learned this aspect of history that has been denied to many people that we'd never heard of absolute
0: and, success yeah. and i
1: do love the fact that he you know makes that front and center because the last couple minutes of the film he focuses on a radio drama which is telling this story and he brings to life the fact that even after the the murders were you know the, the murderers were convicted and quote unquote justice, if you can call it justice had been restored when Molly's character eventually passes away, there's no murder of, or there's no mention of the murders to her family yeah. in, in her own obituary. And it's kind of just history doing its best to erase history. And so for, ske- uh, for, for, Oh, I can't speak anymore. Scorsese's <laughs> mission For him and his mission of bringing these to light, I think he's totally successful. Yeah, I think so too. I think, uh, again, his
0: notoriety and his ability to bring an audience to whatever project he's actually working on uh, definitely informed me a lot about history that I'd never heard of. And I'll tell you what, you know how I really enjoyed the movie? When I got home, I went and researched what actually happened and the characters. I was fascinated by it. I mean, the story is a tragic, tragic story of greed. And, you know, like you said, there is racist elements and all these other themes at play. But it is an interesting story. And some of the stuff that, you know, I was able to go research, it was a lot of fun. It reminded me a little bit of Oppenheimer. Like after we saw Oppenheimer, I was like, oh, my gosh, I got to go look this up. And I want to learn more about this. That movie had or this movie had that. No, absolutely. So, and I do think, right, it was a story that I had never heard of, literally, ever. I didn't, you know, at least with Oppenheimer, I'm like, yeah, I'm familiar with the Manhattan Project and the Trinity Test and some of these elements of it. Uh, Like, I'd heard of Oppenheimer, you know, I didn't know all that much about him. But in this case, I didn't know any of these characters. I didn't know anything and still found it worth, you know, reading more about them and learning a little bit more about the Osage and and Mm -hmm. how things have gone for them since then and all these different things. So... You know, Scorsese, well done. Absolute success. You definitely, you know, raise the profile of something that probably would end up, you know, forgotten to history.
1: Yeah. So I guess the last thing I want to ask you is, obviously, <laughs> Scorsese's made a lot of great movies. And Scorsese has had a lot of movies which have been nominated for Best Picture. Where does this kind of sit in, in his filmography in your mind?
0: I would have to pick a little bit of middle of the pack. I mean, off the top of my head, I don't know exactly how many films, you know, Scorsese has had. I I know like one of mine that wasn't really my favorite. Did he did he do Cape Fear? Mm -hmm. I I wasn't a huge fan of that movie. Um, I thought that one was all right. He had an animated one a few years ago that was okay. Like I enjoyed the movie, but it wasn't one that sticks with you. Mm -hmm. In fact, to the degree that I can't even remember it.
1: But, are you thinking of hugo
0: yeah maybe that's what it was yeah where i was like it was good i mean i watched it because it was scorsese like mm-hmm. i didn't think it was bad but it, it just wasn't one that like i was like oh my god i can't wait to like see that again or show somebody else or right mm-hmm. um so you have some movies down you know everybody has a bottom somewhere if you got to rank stuff even if you're fantastic you know all mm-hmm. great you still got to rank it I'd put this somewhere in the middle. I mean, his top films to me, Goodfellas, Wolf of Wall Street, Departed, Taxi Driver, would all still be above this one. You know, maybe even Casino. I mean, there's, you know, you could go on and on and just name his films, but I'd put it somewhere uh, a little bit maybe above the middle. I definitely enjoyed it. I was glad I went and saw it. Glad that I learned the history. So it was definitely, to me, a bit of an important movie where it's not just an entertaining movie. Uh, It's worth seeing.
1: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I don't know. What do you think? Feels sort of the same. I think probably more lower middle for me. I, I think it's very easy to identify the Scorsese movies that are better. And in my opinion, I would add the ones that you had, but I'd also add Casino. I'd add Gangs of New York, and I've had all gangs add New York, yeah. The Aviator. I think all of those are better films than this one. It just... I felt like I watched it like it. it what just, about like Shutter Island? It's probably on par with Shutter Island. I just feel like it's Scorsese, but I'm like, hey, you aren't at the top of your game with this one. This was okay. not your best film. Yeah,
0: I mean, it, there's, you know, some Scorsese movies just instantly. You're like, wow, what a rush. You know, I think probably right down there. We said, I mean, I even said it, you know, The Irishman.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh
0: you know, a little bit of a slower version of some of the stuff he does. I really, you know, the Irishman, I love the themes of it in this one. I love the historical, you know, aspects of forgotten history. And it's crazy because that's actually a theme of this movie is that like people pass and things just get forgotten. Right. And then you move on and then it's like something else happens and then you just sort of keep moving on. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. That's a theme of the movie and it's, you know, a big reason that he wanted to make it in the first place. So, I thought it was very important in that regard. But yeah, probably a little bit more middle of the pack for this one. So, CP, that does it for our discussion this week. Uh, definitely fun to talk movies. I know you and I talked for probably, you know, about an hour or so ourselves when we saw it. And we actually at the time said we should have recorded this phone call.
1: <laughs> yeah, and sorry again for having to wait three months to have this conversation. And we certainly hope you got to see Kills of the Flower Moon. And if you haven't, and you are still listening, well, we hope that we intrigued you enough that you are inspired to go see it for yourself.
0: Yeah, it's a movie where obviously, like we said, uh, you know, we put a spoiler warning, but realistically, like, even if you knew the story, the movie is still really good and an interesting take on what really happened, even if you already know the outcome. So definitely go check it out. And especially in preparation for the Academy Awards, the Oscars, because Killers of the Flower Moon could end up being the best picture of the year. So pretty cool. And I'm glad we finally got to talk about it, CP. But on that note, uh, I'll go ahead and uh, take us out a little bit here. Be sure to follow the show at FilmmakersCompass.com, where we have a feed of all of our previous episodes, as well as this one. And you can follow all of our social media at Film Comp Podcast, where we have lots of updates, uh, different types of posts. CP is always sharing his thoughts after he goes to the movies, which is quite frequently, CP. I don't know. What would you average it at? You go to two movies a week, at least one.
1: At least two, yeah. Pretty much <laughs> so CP is always do, sharing
0: thoughts yeah uh, he already like I said he's dropping a uh, Oscar stuff he couldn't help but talk about Barbie so CP I love all your content and be sure to follow along you know send him messages leave comments definitely let him know what your thoughts are because apparently all of you agree with him more than me so I got to create some more <laughs> content and see if we can get that closer to a 50-50 divide there but CP, I'm going to throw it over to you. Go ahead and
1: uh, take us out. All right. Thanks for hanging out and talking movies with us this week. We'll be back here next week. Until then, you got 10 best picture films to watch, so keep watching movies.